she could. You could do announcements. Yeah. All right, if I could have you return to your seats. One of the things um, as we enter into a book that is more narrative, and well, it is a narrative, uh, as opposed to Proverbs where you're jumping around from different chapter to chapter, I, I want to encourage you to start bringing your Bible. So, for example, I'm going to be referencing a couple sections um, around the, the particular text we're looking at. We just can't print the whole Bible in our bulletin. That's just the reality of it. I mean, that's, but if you have, I know, big bummer. We, we're limited in space. We print what we're going to study today. That's, that's, our, that's our pattern. But um, it just bring your Bible. That's a good experience to, just to be able to. Um, what, and oh, thank you, Kimberly. Yeah, and we do have Bibles in the back. Like, if you need a Bible, steal it. That's yours. And no one. That's true. It's a secret. Uh, I, I heard one pastor say, I've never heard, the Bible is an interesting book. It's a book you could steal and no one would ever complain about you stealing it. So please, if you, have, if you want a Bible, take it. It's yours, right in the margins. It's, it's a really uh, helpful thing. Um, so we're gonna be looking at the book of Acts for the next season of our church. This morning, we're looking at Acts chapter one, verses 12 through 26. I'll be referencing, as I said, other, other parts of Acts around this particular text because when we think about it, it is a story, and we're just looking at a snippet of the story, but you need the context of the story if you really understand the story, so uh, that's what we'll do. So if you have a Bible or if you have the bulletin, you can look with me at the reading of Scripture we'll be looking at today. Follow along with me. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. This is the disciples, okay? And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot and Judas the son of James. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. What a neat room, huh? In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers, the company of persons was in all about 120, and said, brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now, this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called, in their own language, Ekeldama, that is, field of blood. Now, this is Peter again saying this. For it is written in the book of Psalms, may his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it, and let another take his office. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all that time the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two. Joseph, called Barsabbas, who was called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them. And the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the 11, 11 apostles. 
I couldn't believe it. I had seen it on television, mentioned by other parents, and even heard, maybe even spoken, when I was a kid. And yet there I was, in the car with my children, hearing them chant this ancient, traditional chant of kids. It's a simple four-word phrase. Are we there yet? This is exactly what I heard on the road to South Florida this Christmas with my family. 17 hours split between two days. Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? How did they pick this up? I didn't say it. I don't think the television shows that they watched said it. They just knew it. Are we there yet? Are we there yet? No, we're not even to Memphis yet. We got 17 hours to go. No, we're not there yet. Ultimately, the the four words that framed our car ride so often, the truth of it is they're deeply instinctual. You don't have to learn and hear to know, are we there yet? I think we all can personally relate to their question because we all hate to wait. We hate it. We want things done now. We want resolution to our problem now. We want to be where we're going now. Personally, I have a very long history with hating waiting. I vividly remember my mom, and it was as true as it all gets out. She looked at me and she goes, you have a problem with impatience. I'm like, I know that. And I want it resolved now. Waiting is such a challenge. It's one of my life's greatest struggles and battles, and my guess is waiting is one of yours. The question I want to look at today, not if you wait and the struggle to wait, the question I want us to wrestle with this morning is, what do we do while we wait? What do we do in the waiting On our 17-hour drive with our kids, you can probably imagine what we did while we waited to get to our destination. We took a DVD, put it in the DVD drawer, and just let the kids watch DVDs, and we could drive in peace. It's a beautiful thing, and I am not knocking this at all. Hallelujah for the DVD. But I think it is a picture of what many of us do in the waiting. When we wait, we find Ways to distract us from what our heart is really wrestling with. Here's what I want you to see. Waiting is a window into your soul. But rather than looking through that window, we will look at anything else. I want to look through that window today. And I want to see what it reveals about us. Because I think that there is a lot we can learn about ourselves and then ultimately about God when we do look through that window. Those distractions keep us from God and from truth. So here's what I want you to consider. Have you ever considered the distractions that we put into our lives? And they can be any number of things. The distractions that keep us uh, distracted while we wait for whatever it is that it's keeping us from something significant. Follow with me to the text, okay? 
I, I told you I want you to see this text in light of where it is in the story. Before the disciples go to Jerusalem, as the text indicates that they do, in Acts chapter 1, verse 4, Jesus gives them the command to go to Jerusalem and do what? To wait. To wait for the promised Holy Spirit. He calls them to wait. Now, now in our text, they do go. But then what follows their waiting? Acts chapter 2, 1 through 13, the giving of the Holy Spirit. Perhaps one of the most profound moments in all of church history, when the Holy Spirit descends on his people, and now they're walking with the Lord, each and every single one of them. There is a profound reality in the waiting. I want you to see the connection between the promise that Jesus gave, their waiting, and then the promise being fulfilled. The waiting is just as important as actually the promise of God, and that's for us. Now, what did the disciples do during the waiting? This is what I want us to learn from. This is what I want us to learn from. They do three things, and we're gonna look at these three things. They obey, they pray, they apply. I think in our waiting, we do the same three things. There's probably a lot more that we can do in our waiting, but there's three things that the disciples did that we can do as well while we wait for the promises to be realized. We obey, we pray, and we wait. So let's, let's, let's look at what they did that we might mirror them and perhaps might experience a profound reality that the disciples did. I don't know what that might be. I don't know, but let's follow in their footsteps by obeying, praying, and applying. So how did they obey? First, how did they obey? This is perhaps the simplest uh, point that I can make. Verse 12, the disciples returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey. What are they doing? They're obeying the command of Jesus. He says, go to Jerusalem and wait for me. They simply obey. Now, we don't know why the disciples are told to go to Jerusalem. We don't have this explanation. All we have is the obedience of these disciples. And this pattern of obeying God in the midst of waiting is a very big biblical pattern. Do you remember the Jews as they're wandering through the wilderness? And what's the promise to them as they're wandering through the wilderness? What are they, what are they, call, where are they being called to? They're being called to the promised land, but they're wandering through the wilderness. And what are they called to do in the wilderness? Obey. Why do you think they wandered for 40 years? You, you wonder why? They disobeyed. And the stories of the Old Testament is filled with their disobedience. They disobeyed. They didn't inherit the promise. Of course, the generation who disobeyed had to pass, and then 40 years, they were able to encounter that. The same thing in, in, in the second wandering. The Babylonians came in, and they took the, the Jews away from Israel. They destroyed the temple. And once again, we have a command from Jeremiah the prophet to the Israelites in Babylon to do what? Can you guess? Obey. So Jeremiah 29.5, hey, build houses and live in them. Plant gardens, eat produce, take wives, have sons and daughters, take wives for your sons, give your daughters in marriage. 
that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there, do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I've sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find its welfare. How do we summarize this command? Obey. In the waiting, obey. And this is exactly what the disciples did. They obeyed. Look, the church today, where we find ourselves in redemptive history, we are waiting for the second coming of Jesus himself. Do you remember what the two men said to the disciples when, when Jesus ascends in Acts 1? He says, just as you saw Jesus ascend, he will descend again. He's coming back. So here we are, church, in the waiting. What are we called to do while we wait? Obey. And Jesus has given us, the church, very clear directions on how we obey him while we wait. Matthew 28, go therefore, make disciples baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them all to observe all that I have commanded you to do. Here we are in the waiting, waiting for a second coming. Are we going to obey? This is our call in the waiting. You know, this, always, this hasn't always been followed in the church. There was a group of people called the Thessalonians, a people near the area of Greece. And when they heard that Christ was returning, they decided, you know what? He's coming back tomorrow. Like, let's go. And they quit working. They didn't obey. They didn't care for those around them. They sat idly by just waiting for the promise of Jesus to be fulfilled. And into their idleness and into their disobedience, the Apostle Paul writes them two letters. It's the letters of First and Second Thessalonians. It's the same for us while we wait for the second coming. There is a command to us to obey. We don't understand why he doesn't come back. We, we don't have insight into what, why can't you just end the mess that we're in right now. We don't have insight into that. We're called to wait for this, and we can so easily be distracted. But we must not be distracted we must stare through the window and say, Lord, what do you want me to do today? Oh, make disciples. So church, while we wait, we obey. We follow the commands of Jesus in Matthew 28. And we seek to make disciples of our children, teaching them the truth of our faith, modeling the faith for them. We, we, we do that in our homes. We do it in our church. We walk alongside those who, who, who are hurting those who are following after Jesus and we remind each other of the gospel. So we do it in our homes, we do it in our church, and we do it in our community. It, you know, it is so easy as a church, especially in a church that's kind of growing and moving, it is so easy for us to be consumed with things in the church. But if we forget, the call of Jesus in the waiting is to make disciples of all nations. And so we're called, yes, to care for our children and to care for each other in the church, but we're also called to, to love our neighbor and to go out and to seek them uh, in the sense of them knowing who Jesus is and the salvation he provides. I was, I was deeply convicted of this reality this week as I spent time in North Carolina with one of my favorite ministers in the Presbyterian Church. His name is Hal Farnsworth, and he is a nut in the best of ways. Hal and I had a one day together 
and we went and played golf together. And his mission in life is that everyone he comes into contact would know at least the story of salvation. And, and let me give you a window into his craziness. I would never use these words, though it's true. He goes, he goes let's play with these two pagans. I'm like, all right, let's, let's do it. And the entire time we're playing golf, he is just laughing with them. He's looking for ways to share the gospel, and dadgummit, he did it. He worked in the message of salvation, and it was so convicting to me because how often that I'm rubbing shoulders with my neighbors and people that I'm with, and I'm not even thinking about that. The call for all of us while we wait is to obey the Great Commission. And we might do a really good job with our kids and do a really good job with each other, but we must continue to do a good job with our neighbors. Because this is the call while we wait for the promise of Jesus to be fulfilled. The disciples did it, and it was easy because it was just a few days. We don't know the end, but we must obey whether we know it or not. While we wait, let us obey. This is what the disciples did. Let us follow in their footsteps. But there's a second thing the disciples did that, that we can learn from. I think it's very important for us as a people while we wait to do, and that is to pray. You can see this in verse 14. They gathered together in this room, about 120, and all these, the disciples and the people, with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer. And together with the women, the Mary, the mother of Je- Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers, they were praying. While they waited on the promise of Jesus to be fulfilled, they gathered together and prayed. And the question that makes me very curious is, what was their prayer like? What was it like? Like, We we aren't given any kind of insight into what their prayer is. So this is pure conjecture on my part. But I wonder and I ponder, what was their prayer like? I don't know the content of their prayer, but I know the disposition of their hearts, though. I want you to just imagine yourself as one of those disciples, one of those 120 people in that room. Consider the context of where you're coming from. 40 days earlier, the one you've aligned your life with was betrayed by one of your own. And then he was tried, he was beaten, he was crucified on a cross. You know, what kind of emotions do you think are going through that time? And we get a little picture of that in the road to Emmaus. They're going, oh, This is terrible, what happened? And then the resurrected Jesus comes in and shows himself. You wanna talk about a roller coaster of emotions, you can kind of relate to what they're going through. But then the resurrected Jesus is like, peace, I'm out, you're getting the Holy Spirit. And then he ascends into heaven. What is happening? We don't know what they prayed, but we can know what they felt a little bit. And I think what it is, is as they're waiting, They get a glimmer, we get a glimmer of their heart and I think the proper disposition of the heart in prayer more than anything else. And that is a heart of pure and utter desperation, of neediness for God. So often, we look at prayer as just going through the motions. It really is. It's just kind of like... Public prayer, we had this discussion uh, two weeks ago at our prayer night. Public prayer is one of the hardest realities because so many people, they don't know how to pray publicly and they just go through the motions and you're more concerned about what other people are thinking about you praying rather than what you're actually praying to God. 
Prayer ultimately is us <laughs> pleading with God for our need for him or praising God for who he is and what he's done and not, not reflecting of this, like re- reflecting on this. Yet when we, when we go through the motions, we're so much more self-centered. Hear the disciples, I'm, all that to say, hear the disciples. They're going, we've been promised the Holy Spirit. We don't know what that means. We don't know what that's going to be like, but we're gonna be on our knees in prayer because we are completely and utterly dependent on him. Are you in your prayer life going through the motions or are you truly in your prayer in the way that you plead with God like totally um, recognizing your need for him? I wanna go back to that window when we wait. I think one of the reasons why we distract ourselves rather than waiting is because we want to have this semblance of control. And when we realize that we're not in control, we just go, ooh, I don't wanna deal with that because the implications of being out of control are too great for me. I won't know answers for, for the, the wrong that's done to, been done to me. There's just too much, I'm just gonna distract myself. When we stare through the window and realize we are not God, that we are not in control, it awakens into us the, the need for God. And when, we, when we're awakened to the need for God, guess where we go? To prayer. I, I worked as a youth pastor in a county in Florida called Citrus County, and it was a really unique county in that there were, there were some, there was people of great means, but then there were people of blue collar. It's like a, it's like a, it's an extended suburb of Tampa, I'll give you a picture of this. But what, one of the things with this culture is that you really got these unique and authentic people. And one of my favorite students that I ever worked with was just, he captured the essence of this community. And his name was Chris. And he was a real light. And one day, we asked Chris to pray. We asked him to pray. And I'll never forget how he prayed. It was, it was a very simple prayer, but it was a prayer from the heart. And it went something like this. God, uh, thank you for what you've done for me. Would you be with my friends? Would you help them? Uh, yeah, that's it. Uh, yeah, that's it. Caught me off guard. It wasn't the church parroted answer. He was not praying this prayer mindful of what other people were saying. He he was praying to God from an authentic heart, a heart that was truly recognizing his true need and dependence on God. And he didn't end it with amen, which is good. He ended it with, ah, yeah, that's it. See, when we look through that window while we're waiting, that's what we're going to encounter That's what the disciples encountered while they were waiting, complete and utter need of God. And so they got on their knees and they prayed. It's the same for you and me while we wait. Are we a people who recognize our complete and utter need for God in the midst of this waiting? Because the truth of it is, we are. You can distract yourself and not lean into this reality, (laughs) but you're just delaying the inevitable. And that inevitable is your need for God. They prayed, and then they received the Holy Spirit.
What does God have for us? I don't know. But let us follow in the footsteps of the disciples while we wait by praying, getting on our knees and asking God to be with us and amongst us. This is what the disciples did. So they obeyed. The disciples obeyed while they waited. And they prayed while they waited. But lastly, they did something that's so vitally important to us that we can follow. They applied. And they applied the scriptures. They applied the scriptures to their lives. They applied it. So the last action is the disciples applying the scriptures, actively doing something while they waited. Look at verse 15 and 16. It says this. Peter stood up among the brothers and said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now skip down to verse 20. That giving that, those verses give context. Peter continues in verse 20. For it is written in the book of Psalms, may his camp become desolate and let there be no one to dwell in it and let another take his office. So I want you to see this. While the disciples waited on the promise of Jesus to be fulfilled, they had to deal with one of the biggest problems they had at that moment. And they did it by applying the scriptures to their context. What was that problem? It was Judas. Judas had been chosen to be one of the 12 disciples of Jesus who would take his message to all the world. This number was a symbolic number for Jesus and the disciples. It meant the, restore, the, the restoring of the kingdom of Israel. The, the, the 12 tribes of Israel were a symbolic number in the Old Testament. It, was, it, it represented the union of all God's people. And now the disciples, with 11, are not the redeemed and reunited Israel. So they needed to add one. It's a new Israel that that was needed. And the apostles had to be 12 in order to capture this symbolic reality. Of course, Judas himself took himself out of the picture. And they looked to the scriptures. They took the scriptures and they applied it to their context. And they sought the resolution of their problem. And here's what they found in the scriptures. They found, number one, the understanding of the situation. And then they found how they can resolve the problem. So how did they find understanding? Well, you can see that Peter quotes two different Psalms, Psalm 69, 25, and Psalm 109, 8. The disciples had every right to be deeply offended and hurt by what Judas did to them, did they not? Yet they did not allow their hurt and their frustration to deter them from what they had to do. They allowed the scriptures to dictate themselves rather than their emotions. And they said, this had to be fulfilled. The scriptures gave them context in their setting to give them light and direction. Ah, this had to be fulfilled. Like, I don't understand why God allowed it, but this had to be the way it went. And so it gave them understanding so that they could then lean in to resolving the problem. And of course, it is to scripture that they turn to resolve their problem. But how did they resolve their problem? Well, we see they first made a list of requirements for being an apostle. And after deliberation, there were two names that fit the requirement, Barsabbas and Matthias. So now they had a tough situation. There's two men that fit the requirements that they said, this is what, they need, what we need. And then they do something very strange, something we don't do today. I don't think we do today. 
They prayed, saying, Lord, you know who the hearts of all. Show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and the apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And then they cast lots. Casting lots was an ancient tradition in Israel that is seen throughout the Old Testament. But perhaps what was likely on their mind was Proverbs 16.33. The scriptures are providing them the means by which to resolve the problem. Here's Proverbs 16.33. The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. They applied the scriptures to the setting that they had, to the problem that was presented to them. They cast lots, and Matthias was chosen. Here's what I want you to see amongst all of that explanation of scripture and how they, they dealt applied the scriptures to their context. They applied the scriptures to their context. In the scriptures, they found understanding and resolution for the problems that their life had presented them while they waited. They didn't sit idly by just going, well, we've got a problem here. No, they saw in the scriptures, ah, this is why, ah, this is how. It's the same thing with you and I. In 2020, a prominent minister named Darren Patrick, he took his own life at a gun range. And after starting a church called the Journey Church in St. Louis, it became a very large and influential church in the country. This then led Patrick to become the vice president of Acts 29, a large and prominent church planting network that still exists today. This man had significant influence on many in my circles, and my guess is he had influence in the circles that you know. But around 2018, things started to go south for Patrick. First, he was removed from his position as pastor of Journey Church due to inappropriate meetings, conversations, and phone calls with two women, as well as an abuse of power. Who knows what was going through his mind at that time? Certainly anger, guilt, shame, and a whole other problems during that moment. But into the midst of this chaotic time in his life, a church from South Carolina, a large church from South Carolina, swooped in and said, why don't you come be a teaching pastor at our church? This came at the, at the, the, the wisdom and advice of many who said, no, bad idea, don't do it, don't do it. He did it. And he went and became a pastor and apparently seemed to be doing really well at this church. The week he took his own life, he went on a podcast discussing the ways that pastors can get mentally healthy and the steps that they can take to, to, to become more mentally healthy. But the man did not take his own advice. He didn't apply the wisdom that he had learned from his life and from scriptures, and he took his own life. Look, I know th- there's a possibility as you hear that story that you would say, that's probably a little bit more complex than you're making it out to be. And I grant you, that's probably true. There could have been chemical imbalances. There could have been uh, drugs that he took that, that would bring about more depression and whatnot. But here's the point that I wanna make with this story that is so vital to us. Regardless of the situation, if he had only applied the scriptures to himself, then perhaps he could have been saved. But he failed to apply the scriptures to himself. And he ended up in great desperation and need, saying, it's easier for me to die than it is to live. 
We have sometimes the easiest solution in the problems of our lives. And that solution is to go to the scriptures, to study it, and then to apply it to our lives. Christian or non-Christian, whoever you are, are you crushed by the weight of your guilt and shame? Like you can't get over the fact that you did what you promised and vowed to never do, and you can't shake it. It, it, it kind of goes with you everywhere you go. That's a problem. And you walk around, head down, woe is me. Do you know that the scriptures say this about Jesus? He has taken your guilt and your shame and he has placed it on his body that before God you stand not condemned but free. Oh, that you would apply the truth of the gospel and not allow your head to stoop and pick it up looking at the cross saying, I am not guilty. I am not ashamed. Oh, apply that scripture truth to your, to your life. Christian and non-Christian, do you feel abandoned by God and deeply lonely? Do you not know the scripture promises the giving of his spirit, that he will always be with you, that he will never leave you or forsake you, that the Lord is described in Psalm 23 as a shepherd, that he guides you and leads you? Oh, that you would apply that truth to your life, that you might say to yourself, I am not lonely. I am with the Lord. Christian, are you frustrated that God has not answered your prayer? There is a slew of scriptural passages where prayer is not answered. There are slews of prayers in Psalms that say, where are you, O God? You have scripture that can apply. You have promises like Romans 8, 28, that in the end, God will ultimately work all things for good. You can apply that to your life and your head does not have to be down and it can be hard but you can still apply that and say, this is hard but I'm waiting with confidence and you apply the scriptures to your life. This is what the disciples did and this is what we can do in the midst of our waiting. The scriptures remind us of the great gospel that lifts up our head that we can apply to our context and wait expectantly on the promises of God to be fulfilled. My friends, let's wait. And in our waiting, let us obey. Let us, on our knees, pray. And then let us apply the scriptures to the problems that we face each and every day. So often they are the solution we desperately need. This is what they did. And what came of it? The giving of the Spirit. It was the very power they needed to then accomplish the mission was needed. Who knows, in staring through that window and following the example the disciples have given us, what will come of us as we look through that window and wait? Oh, may God do wonderful things as we wait. Let me pray. Our gracious Lord, we give thanks to you for the work of your spirit in the life of these disciples who in the midst of their waiting gives us a picture of what we can do as we wait. Lord, we do wait your second uh, coming. 
when you will establish your kingdom once and for all. We do long that you would come and end the misery that so many of us are going through. Oh, we live in the, the miseries of this life, caused by ourselves, caused by others. And we long for the relief of these moments. So we ask, oh Lord, that you would indeed come. Come, Lord Jesus, and relieve us of this burden. But in the meantime, in the meantime, while we wait your return, we ask, oh Lord, that we would be diligent to obey and pray and to apply the scriptures. You have not left us alone. You have given us a beautiful picture. May we follow in that and await the beautiful ways that you work in our waiting. Amen.